1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11 is our text for the morning. I have uh, entitled it, What's the Difference? What's the Difference? We're in a series through these two chapters, 5 and 6, where I'm calling it Caring for the Temple. And in these two chapters, you see calls to care for the temple. And by temple, we mean the house of God, the church of God, care for this body, but also care for your own bodies in particular. Use them according to who you now are in Christ, so caring for the temple, whether it's the the church, the assembled people of God, the, the people of God that we've committed to, or our own bodies, our own lives, caring for the temple. And one of the things that you see in 1 Corinthians, I think you've probably picked this up in the first five chapters so far, is Paul's constantly reminding them of who they are, what they believe, what they hold to, because they're sometimes forgetting that, acting like the world acts, and we'll see that in this passage they've been doing that as well. But a lot of 1 Corinthians is reminding people, reminding Christians of who they are and what's happened to them. And so this is the reason for the title, what's the difference? What's the difference between the old you or the way of the world and the new you, the new way in which you live? You see, who we are should affect how we live, right? Uh, if you are, um, if you just get a new job or let's say you, you are going to build houses, uh, you, you've been declared to be an employee of the company, you are now someone who builds houses. You are a contractor. Well, what should you do in response to that? Build good houses. So, who you are should affect how you then live. Same is true in the Christian life. Think about it this way. When when someone um, becomes a citizen of the United States who was previously a citizen of another nation, they make a commitment. Uh, I've going to read you part of that commitment. And what I want you to see is now that I've got this new status, now that I no longer belong primarily to the, the old country, but now to my new country, because I belong to this country, I'm going to make certain commitments and abide by them and live accordingly. Listen to what the naturalization oath is for new citizens of the United States. This is just part of it. I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or a citizen. So I've got a new loyalty. That I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. So you get it. Now as a new a new person in this community, I'm going to live like this. Well, again, the same is true for a Christian. Now that, in the words of the end of our section, now that I've been washed, sanctified, justified, I'm now going to live this way. We're remembering who we are, and that affects how we live. Let's read the passage together. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? 
How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So we ask, what's the difference? So many of you Corinthians, Paul's saying, are handling disputes like the world handles disputes. So many of you are living in the sins of verses 9 through 11, or specifically 9 and 10, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers. What's the difference between who you were and who you claim to be now? What's the difference? You'll see in this passage that clear terms are used for Christians and and the unrighteous in the world. You see throughout this passage that Paul uses the word saints a lot, set-apart ones, holy ones, and he also uses uh, the word brothers a lot for the believing community. So he's, he continues to talk about them being saints, them being family, brothers, and he re- uses two primary terms to refer to the unbelieving world, unbelievers and the unrighteous ones. So all throughout these 11 verses, there are two groups that he keeps going back and forth in between, and he's telling the righteous ones, the, the saints, the brothers, he's saying, you're living like this, and you're even bringing your own disputes with your brothers and sisters before them. There's this, they have this wrong view of who they are and who the unrighteous are and how those things should play out. That's what's happening in this passage. So for our outline, two reasons Christians must remember who we are as saints and children of God. Two reasons Christians must remember who we are as saints and children of God. Now, the first eight verses are going to be about handling civil disputes and bringing them before the unrighteous rather than having the righteous help us come to reconciliation. Now, I want to give you a few caveats because this is this one passage, but there's other biblical truth that kind of gives us a full picture here, all right? This is about civil matters between believers, disputes between believers that evidently, based on reading the passage, um, were, were civil disputes where some would defraud others, some would try to get money from others, or even damage their reputation. So that's what's happening in these civil disputes. These believers are having disputes, these professing believers are having disputes, and they're trying to get at each other's money to be, be rewarded because they've been wronged, or they're trying to damage another's reputation in the church because, again, they've been wronged. And Paul's saying, you don't bring that kind of thing 
to the unbelieving world. And we'll see him talk about that. This is about civil matters between believers. In criminal matters, Paul highlights the purpose of human government in Romans chapter 13, 1 through 7. So this isn't saying that Christians somehow have some sort of Sharia law. The laws of the land never apply to the church. We handle everything in-house. A lot of churches have done that in the name of hiding sin to the detriment of those suffering and being abused and hurt. So this is not Paul arguing for that. He says in Romans 13, the government is there to bring justice, to punish evil, to reward good, and the government does not bear the sword in vain. Paul himself in Acts appeals to human governments. This is talking about certain civil matters, not criminal matters. So don't hear us explain this passage and think that sexual or physical abuse in any way or sexual or physical assault, if it happens in the ministries of Kenyan Bible Church, will kind of be handled in-house. No, we've got to be above reproach, bring that to the proper authorities. That's a criminal issue. This is talking about civil disputes between believers, and those should, should be able to be handled within the people of God. Wrongs with one person against another in a civil way, maybe affecting property, money, reputation, things like that. So again, a full understanding of what Paul writes to the churches understands that civil matters should be handled by believers, by people who will, in the words of Paul here, judge angels one day. Can't you handle the more trivial matters? The implication being, yes, you should be able to handle those more trivial matters. So the incident in Corinth here is that there are civil matters and Christians are bringing one another to court against other Christians and trying to settle those disputes or air their dirty laundry in the world's courts. So again, for our outline this morning, two reasons. Christians must remember who we are as saints and children of God. The first reason is this. Remembering who we are will help us settle disputes accordingly. Remembering who we are will help us to settle disputes accordingly, according to who we are. The key verse in verses 1 through 8 that kind of summarizes the argument is in verse 4. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? It's really the summary of 1 through 8. But let's look at verse 1, and then we'll move through and kind of make the argument here. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now, in the original language, you've, you know this, we've talked about this a number of times, uh, in the Greek, if the, the, the word is at the beginning of the sentence, it's there for emphasis. So, in the English, it reads as I just read it, when one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Here's how it reads in the Greek. How dare you? Dare is the first word. Do you dare have a grievance and go to the courts? The unrighteous, there's the first word, there's emphatic. You're supposed to hear that and kind of stand up. How dare you? When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know, verse 2, that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Now, 
a couple things get your attention. How dare you? Okay, I'm listening. How dare I what? There's another thing that would get my attention if I were sitting there at the church in Corinth hearing this letter. Are you incompetent? Okay, I'm listening. (laughs) What am I missing? What am I not getting? Do you not know the saints will judge the world and if the world is to be judged by you? Are you incompetent? Are you not able to try trivial cases? You see Paul's point there, right? If you're going to judge the world one day, which the saints are, we don't know a lot about how that's going to happen, but if we're going to have leadership positions and ruling positions with Christ, if we are going to reign with Him, as the Scriptures say, then can't we handle this? The implication is, yes, we should be able to handle whatever this is. They could have had Daniel 7 in the background. Daniel 7 was a prominent passage in the mind of of a Jewish uh, person, and maybe that would be in the Jews' mind, the Jewish believers here in Corinth, maybe that'd be in their mind. Daniel 7.22 says that judgment is going to be given to the saints of the Most High as as they possess His kingdom. Judgment will be given to God's people as they rule and possess His kingdom. We're going to be making decisions about things in God's kingdom. That's what He does. That's what He's told us is going to happen. And notice how the future is in view. The future helps them. What's true in the future should affect how we handle disputes now. We saw something similar to that in last week's passage in chapter 5. If there's a scandalous sin, you're supposed to deliver this man to um, Satan, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul's constantly pointing them back to, or to the future to help determine what they should do in the present. He does it there in the matter of church discipline. He does it here in the matter of handling disputes with one another. So think of what's true in the future, and that should affect how we operate in the here and now. Now understand something about first century Corinthian lawsuits. First century Corinthian lawsuits, the aim of lawsuits was to prevail over another, to win. Now that's not totally foreign to us, but it went beyond that. That usually involved an assault on the opponent's character and an attempt to damage their reputation. It it was bloodthirsty. Lawsuits were bloodthirsty. And Paul's looking at the church saying, how in the world are you engaging in that? What are you doing here? The church's reputation is in mind here. The church's reputation was in mind in the last passage, right? Chapter 5. There's someone involved in a scandalous sin in, in the church, and even the pagans look down on that sin. Here there's the church that's engaged in the same bloodthirsty lawsuits that the pagan world's engaged in, and they're meant by Paul to realize, what are we doing here? What in the world are we doing? Verse 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? I also want you to notice something else about the connection between 5 and 6. I told you last week, if you were sitting in that Corinthian church and you knew that there was a scandalous sin, this man was having an, um, an immoral relationship with his stepmother, if you knew that and the apostle Paul came in, you'd think, oh, he's going right to this guy. And then he comes to the rest of the church and says, what are you all doing? You might think, why are you talking to us? Because we're all responsible for one another and you're letting this go on. 
So Paul goes to the church when there's a scandalous sin of a sexual nature. What are you doing here? Here, people are bringing one another to court, and Paul addresses those people, but he also is saying to the church, what are you all doing? Aren't you wise enough to help mediate this thing? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Aren't there any peacemakers among you to help get this brother and brother and bring them together, this brother and sister, this sister and sister? Can you help these two come together? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Again, Daniel 7, 22. The saints of the Most High will rule, possess the kingdom. Jude 14, listen to Jude. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness. We evidently are carrying out the justice of God in the future. Revelation 2.26, the one who does not give in but overcomes the evil one. Revelation 2.26, the one who overcomes will be given authority over the nations. Sometimes people think about the future kingdom of God as Christians just kind of, you know, playing eternal golf and just eating eternal food. And, you know, I think we'll be enjoying lots of things. It's, it's a real physical place. I would not be surprised if there are games and recreation and joy with, without sin. That, that's a part of it. But we'll also have certain jobs, managing things, ruling things, evidently giving judgments, making determinations. We'll say more about that. I can't. Paul just leaves it here. And I've grabbed some other passages that talk about some things we may be doing, but there's, there are question marks as to how far does that go? What exactly would that look like? That's not what we're supposed to go down the rabbit trail to examine. Paul's making the point. If you're going to be making judgments in the future, determining things in the future, you should be able to handle disputes among brothers and sisters in the body. You should be able to do that. Again, verse 4, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Verse 5, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? That may be one of the most sarcastic statements in a very sarcastic book. You remember, what, you remember what they think about their wisdom. They think they are wise. But Paul showed them earlier on, that's a worldly wisdom. You need the wisdom of Christ. He says here, I say this to your shame, can it be there's no one among you wise enough to settle such a dispute between the brothers? Again, echoes here of verse 2, are you incompetent? Are you not wise enough? Are you not competent enough? But, verse 6, brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Two problems in verse 6. Brother goes to law against brother. That's a problem. And second problem, you do that before unbelievers. Again, look at the damage to the reputation of the church. One damage to the reputation, brother goes against brother. Second, they do that before the world, before the unbelievers. Verse 7, 
To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Please do not miss what he's saying. Why do people bring lawsuits against one another? Because they want to win. They want to be compensated for the wrong that was done against them. They want justice to be done, and they want to get back what they lost. Paul's saying if you do that, you already lose. Well, what if I bring a lawsuit and I actually win? I was wronged, and I win, and I'm paid back for it. Paul says you've lost. Again, are you a Christian or are you operating like the world operates? At some point, Jesus is Lord or he's not. Jesus, the Lord, was the expert at being wronged and leaving judgment into his Father's hands. And the call for us is to follow in his footsteps. We'll make that point from another passage in a moment. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. You imagine two believers being in the middle of a lawsuit. The the verdict has not come yet. The judgment has not come yet. And they're wondering which one's going to win. The answer is both have lost. The one bringing the lawsuit clearly has lost. Whether you win your lawsuit or not, just having one is a defeat. Why not rather suffer wrong? Paul says it's better to suffer the wrong than to bring the lawsuit. Now, it doesn't feel like that, does it? It feels like I want to win and be paid back for the injustice done. It feels like that's better. But thank God we don't determine truth by how we feel. He says, why not rather suffer wrong? It's better to suffer wrong, better to be even defrauded. So it's better to suffer righteously than to win sinfully. It's better to suffer righteously than to win sinfully. To that someone may object, but don't you know what I've been through? And while I, and I'm just teaching what he says, (laughs) don't shoot the messenger, I'm teaching what the Holy Spirit has said, I don't at all want to minimize the suffering. I'm not saying that it's easy to suffer wrong. I'm not saying there wouldn't be tears as we suffer with you. I'm not saying that the suffering isn't real. He's not saying that. That's why he says, why not suffer wrong? It is suffering. It is hard to be wrongly accused, to have people come after you, to be lied about, to be gossiped about, slandered about. It is very hard. It is suffering. But just because it's hard doesn't mean it's better to then go on the attack. Why not rather suffer wrong? It's better to suffer wrong. Why not rather be defrauded? So what's, what's worse than suffering wrong? people suffering wrong often think nothing's worse. But you could say the answer from verse 7 would be, here's what's worse about suffering wrong. Not suffering because you've taken vengeance into your own hands. Now, that's what our flesh wants to do. But Paul's saying that would be worse than even the suffering. Again, I read you Matthew 5 
and say, if you've signed up to be a Christian, this is what you sign up for. We're different. We're set apart. We respond to wrongs differently than the world does. Jesus' own words, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. It is very clear from the New Testament that God rewards the suffering that we've gone through on earth. He will reward one day what we've lost on earth. So if someone wants the tunic, give him your cloak and wait for the full full wardrobe in the future. (laughs) He'll pay back. Suffer in his name. Listen to what Peter says. 1 Peter 2, 21 to 23. (laughs) You know, a lot of times when we think of becoming a Christian, sorry, not Peter's words yet. I'm, I'm, I'm interrupting that. A lot of times when we think about becoming a Christian, we think about what we've been called to. Heaven, forgiveness of sin, eternal joy, and those are all true, praise the Lord. But there are other things that we're then called to when we sign up to follow Christ. First Peter 2 says that we're called to suffer. It's hard to hear sometimes, but that's what, that's what he says. For to this, and it's unjust suffering, To this you have been called. Listen, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So, how did, so I'm going to read about, Peter's going to tell you how Christ suffered, and the whole point is this is how you're to do it as well. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. He didn't sin when he suffered. He didn't say, well, you've done this to me wrongly. Well, then I'm going to do this to you. He didn't sin when he suffered. And he didn't lie to get out of it. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten with a lawsuit or with retaliation, when he suffered, he did not threaten. Why? Here's why. But continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. This isn't saying, just take it, and they just might get away with it. They will never get away with it, even if it appears they are for a time. God will Right, all wrongs. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Romans chapter 12. So how do you suffer? How, do you, how are you wronged? How are you defrauded? How do you have your reputation dragged through the mud? How do you have people come after your finances wrongly? How do you do that? You entrust your soul to the one who judges justly, and you don't sin while you're being attacked. Again, verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? And then he says this to the, one, to the ones involved in this lawsuit, and probably speaking to the plaintiff, the plaintiff in this manner, the one bringing the lawsuit against a brother, but you yourselves 
wrong and defraud even your own brothers. What are you doing? So you, you see the two problems in these two verses, right? The one is that a brother is bringing another brother to law. That's a problem. But it's also a problem for the church not to do themselves something about that rather than bring it before the unrighteous, the ungodly. So remembering who we are will help us to settle disputes accordingly. The church should not be airing their dirty laundry in front of the world. The church should not have the unrighteous judge what we are perfectly capable to, ju- perfectly capable to judge. Again, I'm talking about civil matters here. Let me say it this way. Let's just kind of notice the similarities. The church should not be attacking one other Christians publicly. Christians shouldn't be defrauding, wronging, even bringing it to the court of public opinion with other brothers and sisters. In the last few years, have you, have you seen Christians attacking one another on social media? What in the world? I want you all to know what he's done, what she's done, what they've done. What in the world? It's already a loss. Those things should be handled with people bringing brother and sister together, people mediating, helping to restore, not bringing it to the world for public consumption, not not acting as if the world is the one to fix that. So why don't we air our dirty laundry in front of the world? A couple of reasons. One, testimony. And two, they're unrighteous and we're God's children. We handle those in the family. Again, that that is not saying that the church is to hide abuse or to hide criminal behavior. Sorry, the Lord tells us, Romans 13, 1 through 7, there's a place that that's handled and the government is the arm of God in that way. So this is not talking about hiding things where people continue to be wronged and hurt. Not at all. Not at all. It's talking about civil matters, two brothers, professing brothers, two professing sisters being at odds against one another, and someone in the church saying, I want to help you guys. I want to mediate. Let me, let me sit down with you. Let's work this out. Let's talk through this. That's what the aim is. This would, this would mean that Christians should know how to help people resolve conflict, right? Now, if you... If you're a parent of multiple children, you automatically are forced into on-the-job training and conflict resolution, right? I mean, you, did, you might not have signed up for that, or I don't really have conflict management skills, I'm not a good mediator. Well, guess what? Now it's in front of you, so let's get good at it. But that's the same when you become a Christian, on-the-job training at conflict resolution, Again, listen to our Lord. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. It reminds me of Paul writing to the church at Philippi. And we know that there were two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche, that had a dispute with one another. And we don't even know what the dispute was, but he goes and talks about how to think through it. And one thing he says in Philippians 4 is, I urge you, brother, to help these women agree in the Lord. So he calls in someone to mediate, someone in the church to help these ladies come together again. 
One of the signs of a healthy church are that there are people that can help bring brothers and sisters back who have conflict. There are people that want to sit with both, not to declare a winner and a loser, but to bring about restoration and reconciliation. Blessed are the peacemakers. So, I would encourage you, if you're a member of this church or a member of any other church, to to see peacemaking as part of your Christian responsibility. It is. To help remind each other of the way we are to love and be patient and endure and the way we are to stop sinning against one another. Part of peacemaking might be rebuking and saying, stop. But peacemaking is a beautiful thing. Our world doesn't know peacemaking. Our world just fights and fights and fights. We were at an elders retreat this last weekend and uh, we were watching a couple videos here and there on just different, some different things and um, we were kind of bemoaning the fact that there, you know, in, in every video you see there's an ad, another political ad, and they're all negative. And we kind of understood that, you know why there are so many political ads that are negative, right? They work. They work. That's why they keep doing it. People pay attention to that. That's what the world does. They keep going negative, keep going negative, keep one-upping each other, keep fighting, keep fighting, keep fighting, keep yelling, keep yelling, keep yelling. Christian is a peacemaker, not one who just yells louder, not one who just attacks more. That's what the world does. Christians are peacemakers. So Paul goes from pointing out specific sins of some in the church, bringing lawsuits and even kind of pointing the church to the the fact that you should be able to handle these things. And then he gives kind of more of a general challenge, a general reminder of who they are. So first, remember who you are so that we can then settle disputes accordingly. But secondly, remembering who we are will remind us to walk accordingly. Remembering who we are helps us to settle disputes accordingly. And now remembering who we are will help us help remind us to walk accordingly. Look at verses 9 through 11. He's going to remind us of who we are down in verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So he's reminding them of who they are and that's how then they should walk. And that's one of the themes, again, of 1 Corinthians. This is who you are, therefore live like this. This is who you are, so settle disputes like this. This is who you are, so walk like this. Verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, let's, let me read verse 8 again so we get that in context. You yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That trying to defraud or win against your brother and sister, that's, that's unrighteous living. And don't you know that that's not the people that inherit the kingdom of God? You're living and fighting just like the world does. And then he says this in verse 9. Don't be deceived. Now, do you know why he says that? Because he doesn't want them to be deceived. Okay? I'm trying to state the obvious here. But evidently, that tells us they might be deceived. Make no mistake. Don't be fooled. Don't be deceived. 
Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now again, in the context, what's that following? Someone's bringing a brother to court because he wants to win. He thinks he's been wrong and he's going to take something back. Don't be deceived. People who engage in this unrepentant sin, people who, who continue in this lifestyle will not inherit the kingdom of God. They can call themselves whatever they want, Christians, whatever you want. The people who operate this way won't inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Some who habitually practice sexual immorality, some who remain idolaters, who remain adulterers, who remain homosexuals, who remain thieves, who remain greedy, who remain drunkards, who remain revilers, who remain swindlers, think that they will inherit the kingdom of God when they won't. People today sometimes debate whether you can be living an actively homosexual lifestyle and still be a Christian. This is the passage to go to that clearly says no. And the context of it is, don't be fooled about this. Don't be fooled about this. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. But it's not just people involved in that sin who can be deceived and think that it's okay to do that and still be a Christian. People who can live or who are living as an unrepentant, greedy person see the person bringing someone to court. As an unrepentant, greedy person or an unrepentant reviler of other Christians, other people, or an unrepentant adulterer should not think that they're going to inherit the kingdom of God. A Christian is made new. If you're not made new, you are old. And what does the old you do? Engages in greed, reviling, sexual immorality, adultery, swindling, reviling, all those things. You continue to do those things without repentance and as a pattern of life. But a Christian has that cycle interrupted and we live differently. So don't be deceived. If you're engaged in those things, you shouldn't take any comfort that you're going to inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what Paul is calling the Corinthians to. They, some of them in the church are engaged in these sins, and they say that it's okay. And he's saying, don't be fooled. That's strong language, but that's the point he's making. Now, as I've told you before, as we've talked about and highlighted from the Scriptures, this doesn't mean, and we read from the Heidelberg even today, our, our passage on the Tenth Commandment, this doesn't mean that Christians, therefore, then never sin. But what's the response to the sin? What's the response to the adultery? What's the response to the greed? What am I doing? That's the old me. I'm different. What am I doing? And it no longer characterizes their life. The Christian is the one who still, to their own shame and 
own personal hurt, still sins but repents of it, continues to struggle against it, turns from it, admits when it's wrong to the Lord and whoever it's affecting. A Christian is one who admits that, and their characteristic pattern of life is different. It's just a new habit. That's what happens regeneration. You get a new heart. You get new desires, new loves, new affections, new joys. There's a new, as the old hymn says, a new principle within. So if you can continue on in an unrepentant fashion in all of these sins, you should not try to find comfort in your eternal future, being with God as an inheritor of His kingdom. Verse 11, such were some of you. You were saved out of some of these sins. Such were some of you, but you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What a wonderful passage. I don't know if you've ever been convicted, and if you're a Christian, you have been convicted of your sin. That's a a given. That's the beginning of your Christian life. But there can be so many regrets in our lives, right? Why did I ever do that then? And then might have been 30 years ago, and then might have been five minutes ago. Why did I do that? I hate that I did that. I can't believe that, and I wish I could rewrite history and take that all back. How do you comfort yourself when you feel that way? I would encourage you to highlight verse 11. This is how you comfort yourself. You were something. You engaged in certain things but you were washed. He's pointing you back to the moment of your conversion. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. And what this whole passage is arguing is, therefore now, live according to who you are. Live according to who you are. Washed means you're cleaned. Any of you ever sinned and felt dirty? Yeah. You feel, you feel impure, dirty, ugly, gross. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says that in God's eyes you are clean. So again, don't let your feelings determine truth. The feeling is I'm dirty. You believe in Jesus Christ, and you confess your sin, you are clean. You are clean. You're washed, sanctified. You're set apart. You're different now. And that should be a reminder to the Corinthians. So stop taking each other to court. So stop living in a habitually adulterous relationship. Stop living as a greedy person. You are set apart. You're different. God plucked you out of the people who live that way, the mire of all that, and He brought you to a new kingdom, a new family, a new home. You were washed. He washed you and then set you apart for something else. And you were justified, declared righteous. Well, I don't feel righteous today. Do you believe in the power of Jesus Christ to forgive you of sins? Yes, I do. Do you believe that He's the way, the truth, and the life? The reconciliation between you and God the Father? Yes, I do. Then you might not feel justified, but you are on the basis of what He's done. On the basis of what He's done, you are saved. How do you overcome Satan? Revelation 12, by the blood of the Lamb. 
They overcame him by the blood of the lamb. How will you overcome sin and temptation? How will you stand righteous in the day of judgment? By the blood of the lamb. And just so you know, when you stand there on judgment day and God says, heaven for you, eternal joy for you, eternal dwelling with me. When he says that to you, you're going to be there because of his son's death for you and his son's righteousness that he gave to you. And when you look around at the other Christians in heaven, there aren't going to be any there who say, yeah, man, I know you kind of struggled with sin a little bit. Uh, I'm glad Jesus died for you. I kind of got here on my own. No one's going to say that. So when you don't feel righteous, but when you believe in the Son, when you grasp the righteousness of God given to you in Jesus Christ by faith, like we read earlier from Romans 3, when you grab onto that righteousness, you're the same as all the rest of us. No one is there because I just kind of got through life and never really sinned. I belong here. We don't belong there, but He's made us to belong. So where do you go when you're ashamed of the sins in that list? You go back and remember that you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Unless you still pursue them in an unrepentant fashion and think that you're still fine. No. Don't be deceived about that. Maybe a word picture for being washed, sanctified, justified. Imagine a five-year-old you know, how, you know how little kids are once they've kind of taken their bath and showered, got their pajamas on at night, and their hair's all wet and combed and, you know, really cute and adorable. The worst thing is when they go back outside, no, we went through all of that. You're clean now. Okay, so imagine the five-year-old kind of clean. Listen, do not go outside. The mud and the dirt out there, it's not just dirty, but imagine it's, it's poisonous. It's when they get that on them, it gets inside of them and it infects and there's no cure for it. To be washed is for the father to bring the rebellious child who ran out there knowing the father said not to, but wanting the mud instead of the warm, joyful, pleasant, loving home life. Wanted the mud, wanted the poison, and now is infected with a terminal disease. Here's the picture. And the father, while offended, while rejected, brings the son or daughter back. And the father is the only one who can cure the disease. No scrubbing before you get in the house. No, nothing will help. The father can cleanse on the inside and on the out, perfectly heals, washes completely clean. It's a picture of the washing. We pursue the mud. He brings us back. There's no hope. We've been dirty. We will suffer forever. It's a terminal disease. Sin is. No cure. Other than the one who has the power over death to wash you. Father brings you back. Washes you. You are now clean. And has brought you inside the house where you are protected, where you are loved, where you are different. Father has not just washed you, He set you apart. Other people are still pursuing the mud. Other people are out there drinking it in, trying to get others in there. You are protected in here. You are washed. You are loved in here. You are set apart in here. But that's not it. You are also justified. <clears throat> and so when you say, 
I feel bad. I know I was out there. I know I'm horrible. I know uh, that's who I am. And he says, that's who you were. Now you are innocent. But I disobeyed you. I'm sinful. You're innocent. But I'm guilty. You were guilty. Now you're righteous. That's the picture of our salvation. Washed when we didn't deserve it. Sanctified when we didn't deserve it. Declared righteous. Justified. And we don't deserve it. That's why salvation's all of grace. God is good. I just want you to notice these last words that we can often gloss over. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's that referring to? It's referring to the power of Jesus. You were washed in the power under the sovereign control of Jesus. You didn't go through, you didn't try to cleanse yourself and then become washed. You can't cleanse yourself. No, no power to change your heart. No power to, to undo your sins. You, there's no power that anyone can give you for salvation, spiritually speaking. But you were washed by the power of, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You were sanctified by Jesus. You were justified according to what Jesus has done. The power of Jesus to save. <clears throat> Jesus was born to save and so when he sets his saving love on you, it's done. It's enough. There's no one else that can do that. No one else that can forgive your sin, Mark chapter 2. No one else can make you clean, wash you again. No one else can forgive your sin, die for your sin. No one else but Jesus can, and he did. So you were washed, sanctified, justified in his name, according to his authority and his power. So find security in your salvation because of what Jesus did. And how does that all happen? Because the authority of Jesus has washed, sanctified, justified you, and it's happened to you by the amazing Spirit of God. The Spirit of God applies it to you. Jesus accomplished it. The Spirit of God takes his death and gives it to you and says, here, take this. This is yours. Praise be to Jesus the Son. Praise be to God the Holy Spirit. Salvation is secure. So God the Son and God the Spirit have given us a radically new standing. So how do you respond to that? Sell disputes according to who you are. And walk as a general way of life according to who you are. You see how the Christian life is one big thank you to who God has made you. That's what it is. Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So I would ask you, is there any part of you that for some reason is kicking against your Father who's washed, sanctified, justified, kicking against Jesus the Son and wanting to go back out into the mud? Is there any part of you that's there doing that, wanting that, Go back to the goodness of God. Go back to the washing of God, the sanctification of God, 
the declared righteousness that God gives you. Go back to that. And if you don't go back to that, and you want the mud, don't be deceived. Most people don't inherit the kingdom of God. So today's a good day to go back to the Father. And that's what Christians do. We keep short accounts of our sin. We're constantly going back, going back, remembering, you washed me, you sanctified me, you justified me. Please forgive me. I trust in your forgiveness. And he does. Again, when we sin, we have an advocate before God the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So go to the Father through the Son. So brothers and sisters, we're different. Who are we? (laughs) We're children of God. We're saints. And that should affect how we settle disputes and that should affect how we walk. I read you part of the naturalization oath for new citizens of the United States. I wrote another one for new citizens of God's kingdom. So I want to read that to you as we close. I hereby declare that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to Satan, my previous master, of whom I have heretofore been a subject. When there is a dispute, I will adhere to the word of God when it's easy and when my flesh makes it difficult. When tempted to walk in sin, I will remember Jesus Christ who lovingly and powerfully qualified me for his kingdom by his death and resurrection. And I will honor the blessed Holy Spirit who powerfully transferred me into the kingdom and the family of God. I will endeavor to always remember that being in Christ makes me wonderfully different. I embrace the privileges and I embrace the responsibilities. Let's pray together. Father, for those that have trusted in your Son, we are different. So please give us the power to continue to be different. Give us the power to continue to live more faithfully like Christ. For those ashamed of sin, and even some of the sins may be mentioned in this list in verses 9 through 10, would you remind them of the gift of washing that's available? Remind them of the gift of sanctification. Remind them of the gift of righteousness that's available by faith, belief, simply dependence upon Jesus Christ. Lord, remind us of the beauty of our salvation and continue to help us live accordingly. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.